Hi, everyone. Welcome to the eighth episode of the Forensic Anthropology Companion podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Kennyhurst. Today, I'm joined by a return guest, Dr. Chris Meyer. I'm Chris Meyer. I am an instructor at Eckerd College in St. Petersburg, Florida. I am a biological anthropologist. I mainly focus in forensic anthropology, and most of my work has been with population affinity and the statistics involved with estimating that. To discuss his paper, Evaluating Mixed Methods Models for the Estimation of Ancestry from Skeletal Remains, from Volume 2, Issue Number 1. Chris and I do a deep dive on statistics focusing on the different ways you can evaluate model performance and what each of these different metrics tells you. So let's jump right in. Could you please give us the three major takeaways from this paper? Sure. So in preparing for this, I actually maybe struggled is the wrong word, but I don't necessarily know that I have three distinct takeaways. So we'll see what I can do. But the first thing I think, and probably the biggest one, is that even on a surface level, this paper, I think, demonstrates that estimates of population affinity are improved by considering data from multiple data sets, in this case, the cranium and the dentition. And then I think my other two takeaways are sort of similar, but it's that when we're reading papers that are reporting accuracy of various models, um, in this case, I'm specifically talking about ancestry population affinity, but I think this probably applies across the board. The reports of accuracy might not be the whole picture of what's going on, or at the very least, what they mean by accuracy should be more clearly explained. And then I guess my last one would be there are other metrics for determining how a model is performing that, depending on the kinds of question we're asking, might be more appropriate. I know we're going to talk about them later, but the one that I was really surprised to find when I did this paper was Matthew's correlation coefficient, which seems like something that I should have heard of before I did this paper, and I hadn't. And so I think that's uh, at least bringing awareness that that's a way to do things might be worth it. I 100% agree. I think Matthew's correlation coefficient is what we should be using, period, for this exact type of model or type of modeling. So what are some of the major benefits of using mixed method models? I think the biggest benefit is just more data. And that maybe sounds like a simple answer, but I really think if you're trying to answer this question about, in this particular case, who this person is, having as much data inform that estimate as you can is going to give you the most accurate estimate. And I understand that there are situations in which having all that data might confuse things and make it more difficult to identify the person, but I think it's important to be accurate. And I don't think that kind of mixed method model is limited to population affinity, especially in other aspects of the biological profile. We talk, learn, teach about all of these different regions of the skeleton that can tell you different things, and we don't really have a lot of good ways to combine them and look at the whole person. The big one that comes to mind is age estimation, which I know because my wife tried to do some work with transition analysis, um, and that that is sort of where that's going, is trying to take all of these indicators and look at them together. And I think, and we might get into this, but for some number or variety of reasons that that kind of multiple indicator approach and not just sort of eyeballing what they all say, but actually defining what they all say has been difficult to implement and is difficult, I think, for a lot of people to keep going. 
I 100% agree. And there are so many good points in that. You mentioned if we're using this to, if we're using these methods to get towards an identification, identity is very complex. So why are we using one aspect to just try to establish it, period? And yeah, we get more information, more nuanced information, some things that maybe you can't encapsulate or that whatever anthropologists can measure in a skeleton or from skeletal remains can't just be done metrically or morphoscopically or with just the skull or with just the postcrania. that it is all of it together. It is, we need to start thinking about us as like a system of things that are all interacting. And Absolutely. I, I think a lot about why we have been focusing on one region. And I, when I was thinking again about it this morning, I wonder if it's just the way that we're taught to structure our own projects for research as we're coming up. We have to start small, right? And uh, all of our advisors always tell us when we think we could change the world with a thesis or a dissertation to narrow your focus, to be specific, to keep it here. But at no point are we ever told to like open back up. And at least in the past, I feel that anthropologists haven't been the best at data sharing or making their data accessible to other people as easily as they are now. But I was wondering, why do you think that we as a field have been focusing on just these very specific or specific regions of the skeleton for much bigger problems? Yeah, I, I like this question. I want to say first, and I think you said very similar to what I think, I don't think it's intentional. I think it's a matter of tradition. And I'm going to speak specifically to the dentition because that's sort of what I know. And I think it's one of the better examples. But until recently, and this I'm probably talking mostly the end of me getting my PhD and these last few years since I've had it, until that period, I don't feel like we were talking about teeth in forensic anthropology really very much at all. And a lot of the practitioners that I know, the people that taught me, they don't know teeth. And they especially don't know dental morphology. So all of the information that you can get from the teeth is not something I got exposed to at all until I was at the PhD level. That's sort of a very encapsulated example, but I think it's very much what you were saying is especially with so many of us now and sort of needing to find that new project or that thing that hasn't been done, people get very narrow focus and then they get into habits in terms of practice. And then they take what works for them and pass it to their students. And that's what we have. And for better or worse, a lot of the methods that get used across the biological profile date back to relatively early days of forensic anthropology where they're looking at one thing because we didn't know what else there was. And so now we, that just sort of gets gets passed forward and forward and forward where, okay, you need to estimate population affinity, look at the cranium. You need to estimate sex, look at the pubis, right? Depending on what your education was, you get those traditions ingrained. Now, I do think that's starting to change because I know even before I published this paper, there were a couple of papers looking at combining craniometric and craniomorphoscopic data um, that had, uh, I think, pretty positive results just the other day. And I've now forgotten the author, but just the other day, I saw a paper um, that was looking at combining morphoscopic with postcranial non-metric trait um, and sort of using those to estimate population affinity. So I think we're moving in that direction. It just is, it's difficult to break with tradition. 
to if somebody is wanting to do some sort of mixed model research, are there any potential pitfalls? I'm sure there are, and I'm sure there are probably a lot that are not going to come to mind. But the ones that I thought of are mostly pragmatic, which at least for me, especially when I'm designing a project, those are sort of the biggest pitfalls that jump out to me at the beginning, because it's like, I might have a great idea, but if I don't have a way to do it, it's sort of dead on the vine. And so the biggest one there for me, and correct me if I'm wrong or if you've heard of anything, but doing this type of analysis, analyzing multiple data sets at the same time is not necessarily easily accessible for a lot of people. And I don't mean like access to something like R, I mean the sort of either the know-how to make that or the models. So I'll just, I'll speak about myself. I made these models as part of my dissertation and then I used them in this paper as of right now because I haven't had honestly, the ability or the time to make something that would be easy for other people to use, no one else has access to these. And so they can't really be used again. Now, I would like to get to a point where that changes. But right now, no one else has access to these models in this paper. And a lot of people maybe are not comfortable with the programming that it would take to create models of their own. And so I think that sort of that access is part of it. The other pitfall that I guess comes to mind is being aware of the fact that depending on your data and the circumstances and the question you're asking, combining methods may actually do worse than either method does on its own. That happened in this paper. So I thought that was a good one to talk about. Not across the board, but I think it was specifically for the European American sample, the models that were running cranial data on their own, at least in terms of positive predictive value, were doing better than the combined data model, which was not something I expected, something I had to think about why that might be happening. But I guess that's a pitfall I would keep in mind is that I'm a big proponent of combining data because it's more information, but you might not get the result you're expecting, and that could be difficult to explain. Yeah, that can be certainly difficult to explain away. And I think we have a natural aversion to negative results in general, or when our ideas don't work out the way that we expected them to. But that's important information to know because, to me, interesting, nuanced part of flip of the Europeans having that idiosyncratic decrease in performance with the mixed models. I, I wonder if at some level that's just a problem with the European label, you know, maybe there are subclusters within that. And the, when you mix in the teeth that it's able to find that. I wonder if it's not a problem with the mixing of the methods as opposed to a problem with just the label from the beginning. It could be. And I was looking at it again today to prepare for this. And I think it could be one of two things happening. And certainly yours is a third one. Who knows what's happening? But I think it could be that European dentition sort of classically has nothing going on. And so you might be adding a lot more data points that aren't really adding that much information. And so that might be driving things down. It could also be because I was looking to prepare for this the European American sample, the highest proportion of missing data, and most of that missing data is dental data. And so it might, that is also probably what's going on there is the combined model has a lot more people missing a lot more variables for that group than the other ones did. 
Yeah, it has to be a combination of all of those things at some different level. And but that's something that you can directly test for if you wanted to later or even better just have a student <laughs> test it. <laughs> I really, really like the variable selection process and your treatment of missing data. I thought you used some really cool techniques about the high correlations among teeth and traits and then just using the one that was more prevalent. So could you just walk us through this approach? Because I feel like anybody particularly dealing with missing data of certain types that might be highly correlated, this would be a very useful tool for them in their toolkit as just a researcher in general. So in terms of variable selection, I, I think I probably sort of subconsciously picked up what I was doing from reading other biodistance papers. Not that this is a biodistance paper, but that was sort of in what I was reading at the time that this was happening. And so I had, I think, like 680 individuals. And I knew that for a lot of them, they were missing a lot of information because it's easy to miss information when you're dealing with dental data. One missing tooth knocks out a whole bunch of variables. And so I knew that I was going to have to deal with the missing data when I eventually got to the models. And I wanted to deal with as little of that as I could. And to make sure that I wasn't, to, as much as I could, I wasn't overfitting the models by having a bunch of redundant data. And so the first thing I went to say is, okay, let me look at these dental variables because that's almost, ex I think that might even be exclusively what got removed because that's where a lot of the missing data was. Let me see, are there any of these that are invariable? That is, they're clearly not going to inform these models because all 680 some people have the same score. And that was true for two teeth for odontomes, where I didn't see them on those teeth in anybody in the sample. So those got removed. And then I did chi-squares to see, okay, I have all these traits, which ones are actually showing a statistical association with population affinity? Because if they're not, that would, at least statistically speaking, they probably aren't going to add very much information to a model that's trying to estimate population affinity. So I can remove those. And then it was... I think highly correlated was the last one that I took out. Of the remaining traits, especially with dental traits, I wanted to see which traits were highly correlated with one another. And then I could remove the one that was missing more data so that I could get rid of the redundancy while maintaining as much data as possible. And so that was true for a lot of molar traits, things like crenulations or enamel extensions, where if it shows up on, let's say, the first molar, it's pretty likely that some form of the trait is going to be on the second and third molars as well. And so having all three of those is redundant, but can you keep one of them and keep as much data as, as possible? And so that was sort of my thinking. And ultimately, I think I got it down to 27 variables, I think. And you didn't directly ask me this, but it just occurred to me. An interesting thing that I remember finding, uh, especially with the chi-squares, is there were traits that, strictly speaking from a dental morphology point of view, should have been useful that ended up being eliminated in this sample. And so... Things like, I want to say, like cusp 7 on the molars, which is, at least in morphology, generally thought of as being characteristic of sub-Saharan African populations. I think I removed that, if I'm remembering correctly, because it wasn't indicative of anything in this sample. And so I think, even if you have expectations, sort of doing this kind of examination of the variables before you start modeling might give you a different picture. Because if I had just 
sort of assumed, okay, we know from morphology, these are the ones that are indicative of the different populations, and these are the teeth on which they are most indicative, I probably would have ended up including a lot of variables that ultimately didn't bear any sort of statistical relationship. That's that's amazing. And Kustavin, that is the pizza wedge, right? Yes. That's interesting. Huh. That's awesome. Could you broadly compare and contrast the random forest naive bays as classifiers, just conceptually what they're doing, their pros and cons? So I think to understand random forest, I need to take a step back and talk a little bit about a decision tree, just sort of at its very basic level. A decision tree can be used on a variety of different types of data. And basically what's happening is the machine is looking at your data for a particular variable and coming up basically with a cutoff value and saying individuals that are below this value or have this value, depending if you're dealing with continuous or discrete data, they will go either, let's say, left or right coming out of that particular decision node. And your individuals will continue to filter down the tree. In my mind, I sort of think of it like a Plinko board where you hit these nodes and then go one direction or the other. They will filter down until they get to the end and they are sort of in a pool that is a classification. That's what a decision tree is. A random forest takes that idea sort of up a level. It is not one decision tree. The machine, quote unquote, grows a forest of decision trees. And for each of those trees, they get a random subset of predictor variables and a random subset of individuals used to build that tree. In essence, what that's doing is it's trying to implement some randomness in your data to keep the forest from being too particular to the set of data that's being used to build it so that it can be applied for classification. And so it builds all of these random trees and your individuals go through each tree the same way they would go through an individual decision tree. And the ultimate classification is sort of the majority vote of the forest, um, whichever class, in this case, it was ancestry, is most common for that individual is sort of the vote that the model gives. I guess while I'm on random forest, I might as well talk about, I guess, pros and cons. The pros and the reason that I chose them is they work well on different types of data. And so I had a lot of discrete and ordinal data that sort of traditional parametric statistics don't handle all that well a lot of the time. And so that was a big pro is that it was good for this type of data. They are specifically used in a lot of applications where you have a lot of variables going in. They're good at handing, handling large amounts of information and they handle missing data relatively easily. And this was a big one for me because I knew there was going to be a lot of missing data. And at least at the time when I was writing this, we hadn't really begun to explore very much imputing categorical and ordinal data, which is what I had. And so imputation wasn't really available. And I, it was not something that I wanted to attempt not knowing what was going to happen in this instance. And so the ability to handle missing data was really attractive. The cons, I would say, is that they can be, one, difficult to implement, that same sort of access situation that we talked about before. That has somewhat been alleviated since I wrote this. I think there is some more publicly available methods for doing random forest analysis. 
that don't require you to write the program in R, um, but that can still be a con. And it could be difficult to interpret if you don't really understand what the random forest is doing to begin with. Especially if, again, probably less so now, but if you were writing this yourself and there's a bunch of parameters that are sort of set a particular way, but you are free to change them. And if you start messing with them, not knowing what they're doing, then you're introducing a lot of unknowns into your interpretations. And then the last con I would say that I, I think I kind of sidestepped is random forests sort of as they are generally built can be can have significant biases when they are based on categorical variables. Um, and a lot of that is most of the time random forest nodes are chosen based on uh, a measure of impurity of the resultant node. So you've gone through this variable. What is the basically the variance? in the pool of individuals that ended up in that node. And that can be biased in categorical predictors because variables with more levels are going to better split data because there are more options of where you can put that divide. Um, but I was able to find for this a different measure. It, ultimately, it was a different program that ran it where rather than using impurity, it was the machine runs the data through the tree once gets an estimate of sort of how that variable is related to, in this case, ancestry. And then it randomizes that relationship and does it again. And it measures the difference before and after randomization, um, which I found as a way that people were dealing with this bias towards categorical data. The only addition that I would put in for the random forest modeling is there is a posterior probability that is generated. And like you said, you're building this forest and each one of these is an individual decision tree. So you, these series of weak models that can make a robust conclusion because they each come up with their own individual classification. So if you have 500 trees, you're going to have 500 instances of a classification. If let's say we're trying to find males and females, whatever, if you have 150 right. is male and 50 is female, then that's your ratio right. that's converted to the posterior probability. And what else do I have? Nope. Yeah, okay. I think we're good to move on. Naive Bayes is a, without getting sort of in the weeds statistically, it's a whole different school of statistical thought. It relies on Bayes' theorem, which in essence, basically is arguing that prior knowledge of your population should inform the statistic and would therefore inform the classification. And so the basic idea of naive phase is that the probability of an individual in group A having feature B, or let's say, is a product of the likelihood of that feature showing up in that group and the likelihood of the individual belonging to that group. So basically knowing that your sample is, let's say, 75% European going in is going to affect the classification into that group. A naive Bayes classifier then takes that, that first term, the probability of having this feature in this group, and extends it to all of the different features you're looking at and multiplies their probabilities together. So it's saying the probability of having an individual that is, let's say, European-American that has X, Y, and Z feature is the probabilities multiplied together of each of those features occurring in the European-American group times the probability of the individual being European-American. And so it's a really, I think, 
intuitive way to look at classification with, uh, let me start with the pros. The big pro being is that in my research, I found it works well on correlated predictors. They, in theory, should not be, and that is one of the assumptions, but enough research has been done that it, it still does okay uh, when things are correlated, which I thought was important because as much as I am removing highly correlated variables, these are all still variables coming from one person. And so they are still going to be correlated to some extent. And the other sort of big advantage I thought was it kind of ignores missing data in its calculation, which is to say, if I have a trait and it's missing for 75% of my sample, which is not uncommon in this particular sample, it's not using those missings to inform the frequency with which that trait is seen in that population. It's only basing it on the data that's there. Pragmatically, that's a pro. Interpretation-wise, that might be a con. But pragmatically, this meant that, again, I didn't have to worry about imputing missing data or removing people that were missing data. Because I think, especially for the combined models, if I had to get rid of everybody that was missing a variable, I would be left with like 35 people out of my sample of 680 something, right? And so that's that, that was a no-go. So I think those were the positives of the naive phase. Probably the biggest con is the reason that it's called naive phase and that it is assuming in calculating that probability that all of those traits you're looking at are independent from one another. So it's using real basic rules of probability, multiplying them together. Those probabilities are only true if the traits are truly independent, which we know that these aren't. And so there are problems, or I guess maybe not problems, but there are considerations to make when you're interpreting the data, because even though this particular classifier has been proven to work well in terms of, I'll say correctness, in classification, I won't say accuracy, because that's a whole other conversation, that what exactly the percentage of correctness or the probability is may not be accurate, because we know these aren't independent, and the classifier is built to deal with independent data. Do you have a preference of one versus the other, just personally, in terms of it could just be use of implementation or ease of interpretation? It's hard to say. As I've said, there are pros and cons to both of these. And one thing that was brought up to me actually doing my dissertation, because that's where these models came from, and then this was a subsequent analysis of them, was that for the naive bays in particular, it may have been more interesting or maybe more informative to do uninformed priors and to set all of the groups at equal probability and see how they did to classify. That's not what I did here. I'm I'm sort of of two minds about that, because on the one hand, in an identification setting, there is realistically probably an equal chance that it could belong to any of these groups, assuming you don't know anything. But on the other hand, there is demographic information about the area in which you're working and the identities of the people that you're likely to encounter. And so I think there's a difficult line to walk there between do we let what we know as people, as anthropologists working in an area, inform the information we're putting out? Or do we assume we don't know anything about that and treat them all as equal and see what happens? And I, I don't have an answer to that question. In terms of ease, I actually think I ended up walking away from this thinking that how Naive Bayes was working was a little 
easier to understand. Could you walk us through the different performance metrics you used in this? Let me back up for just a minute. I came at this because I did the models originally and really only looked at positive predictive value, PPV. It's what I was most accustomed to using, I feel like is what we get as a measure of accuracy in a lot of models that we use. And even though I had heard the term, somehow over the years in my mind, they became synonymous. That PPV was accuracy and that really we could just be calling it that. And so then I was just doing a little digging, I think maybe even related to a different project where I knew I didn't want to use PPV. I don't remember exactly. And I came across the fact that PPV is not necessarily accuracy and that there are a whole variety of ways to interpret how accurate your model is. And I thought, okay, then why aren't we ever talking about these other ones? And what am I actually saying when I'm saying that this model is, let's say, 75% accurate, when in that case, accuracy means PPV? And so I was like, okay, let me break this down, define what all of these mean, and then see what is actually happening for accuracy if I'm measuring it these different ways. So positive predictive value, the way I have found it easiest to think about it is it is the rate at which the model is correct, meaning when it makes a designation. So let's say my naive days designates somebody as African-American. PPV is measuring, okay, given the number of times it made that designation, how often is that designation correct? So let's say it identified 10 individuals as African-American and seven of them were correct, the PPV would be 0.7. I read that and discovered that and I was like, well, that's interesting and useful to know, but that's not really giving me all of the information I need. And that just had not occurred to me prior to this. So then I found sensitivity, where sensitivity is not how often the model is correct, but given your pool of unknown individuals, how often are they put in the correct group? So if we say we're classifying 100 people, sensitivity is a measure of how many of the, out of that 100 were put in the right place. Regardless of how well the model does, the PPV, for that particular group, let's say African-American, how many of the African-Americans were classified correctly? That's sensitivity. Matthew's correlation coefficient was the one that really threw me for a loop, as we already talked about, because it seems like the thing we should be using to measure accuracy in these instances, and we just aren't. Because it is not a measure of how well is the model doing, and it's not a measure of how many of the people were classified correctly. It's kind of a middle ground. It's a correlation between but what group did the model say they belong to, and what group do they actually belong to. So basically, when you have a model, how often does the group a person is put into correlate or how strongly does it correlate with the group they were actually a part of and that was just sort of a it was a new statistic to me that seems like exactly what i needed to be measuring with these particular models and i would also uh, point out that like all correlation coefficients it ranges from negative one to positive one negative one meaning that you're observed and you're expected never agree and then positive one being they always agree so then, yeah, this tells you, I guess, just model performance in general, it tells you like the goodness of your model, like the workiness, like how it's the perfect metric, I think, for this type of analysis. And it tells you so much more. Right. When I really started to like 
again, get into the weeds of what all these were and what they were measuring, it was surprising to me because I was thinking about like these hypothetical scenarios where let's say that I had 50 African-American individuals that needed to be classified and one of them got classified as African-American, but it was correct. The PPV would then be very high because the model was correct 100% of the time it said that, but the sensitivity would be very low because 49 of them were misclassified as something else. And so I really feel like this middle ground where it's not either or, but what is the correspondence between what actually exists and what is being predicted that is the useful information, I think, when you're trying to evaluate a model. I, I agree 100%. And this is not as influenced by sample size as something like positive predictive value is. How do you think including metrics, both cranial and dental, might impact your results? It's really hard to predict that, but I've had the, the same thought. My assumption would be further improvement, right? Because at this point, all of the separate data sets craniometrics, dental metrics, dental morphology, craniomorphoscopic traits, they've all been shown to have predictive value to different degrees, depending on the population you're looking at or the traits that you're using, but they've all been shown to work to one extent or another. And so my assumption is that together they would be more powerful. One thing that I think might be a bit of a hang-up combining metrics with uh, these morphological data is something like sex and sexual dimorphism, where for craniomorphoscopic traits and most of the time for dental morphology, sex differences or a sex imbalance sample don't make that big of a difference. There are some dental traits that are sexually dimorphic, but mostly they're not. Metrics, we know, are sexually dimorphic. And so I think in order to actually incorporate this, you would either have to standardize the measurements, maybe with something like a Z-score, before you incorporate them so that you're sort of removing sexual dimorphism, or maybe more useful would be to do something kind of like what Fordisk does and make the models so that they are giving you a sort of simultaneous sex and population affinity estimate so that you don't have to get rid of that information. But it's really hard to say without having done it. I think the interactions between some of the metric and the morphoscopic data would be really fascinating. One thing that we know, and I'm going I'm to talk about teeth again, because teeth are kind of what I know. But one thing that we know is that to some extent, there is a relationship between tooth size and crown complexity. And so the larger the teeth are in the population in general, they tend to have more complex dental features. And so that would be a really interesting interplay for better or worse to see how that affect prediction where do we have these features are they more useful because this is a large toothed population or does the size and the complexity together give you a stronger indication that it belongs to one group i think that those are really fascinating questions and i want to get around to investigating them was there anything about this that was surprising to you or something that you thought or you didn't expect to happen that you saw or I guess what was the most surprising thing about this paper to you? I think just generally speaking, and I, I have a couple of specific examples of this written down, but I think the biggest surprise was the magnitude of difference 
between PPV sensitivity and Matthews correlation coefficient in some cases. And so one that I wrote down was the European American combined random forest models, which PPV was 0.73 and then sensitivity jumps up to 0.92 and the Matthews was 0.62. Those three being so different, like if you can imagine having any one of those three numbers could feasibly have been reported as an accuracy for this model, right? Without having said necessarily how that was being measured, those are wildly different. They range from like 62% to 92%. And so I think not in all cases, but in some cases, how different each of the three of them was is probably the biggest surprise. And that actually the differences or rather the level of improvement that I saw in the what I then called the Hispanic sample, but we'll talk about how I, I would have changed that probably. The magnitude of improvement that I felt like I saw with the combined models in that group is actually part of what inspired the last paper I was on here to talk about with Dr. George. And so that was kind of surprising as well, where I thought going in that combining cranial and dental data was going to improve things. I was surprised by how much more it seemed to have improved things in one group compared to the others. But then for this paper specifically, looking at these different ways to measure model performance, just how, how disparate they were for some of the models was really surprising and really sort of, I think, underscores, if not using a different metric, at least understanding and being explicit about what you mean when you are reporting the accuracy of a model. Looking at model diagnostics is necessary because it tells you something about your model, like something is clearly wonky there. There's something about European Americans in this model that is strange and that should be taken into account. I feel like we're so used to easy answers that if we get a high enough probability statement with it, we stop there, right? Right. Like, oh, it's that, it's it. And I think it's important that you pointed that specifically out is that these different performance metrics tell us different things and we have to be able to consider them all because that's going to influence reality or at least limit or put parameters on what we could possibly say about it. I agree. Is there anything about this paper that you think is important that might get missed? I, I don't know that I would say missed because I think it's pretty explicit, but I'm, I'll just highlight the thing that I think still stands out is the different performance metrics and that you really have to understand. And as I've said it a couple of times, and I hate to be repetitive, but be explicit in what you are using to define how your model is performing. I mentioned when we were talking about how this sort of was conceptualized and why I was looking at these, that for a lot of my education and a lot of my work through really no one's fault, just because of the way things are kind of done, I had begun to just automatically equate PPB with accuracy. And looking at these other measures, it was really kind of surprising that even if they don't get used, because that's fine, right? You make your own decision based on the question you want to answer, but they don't even get talked about, right? And sensitivity, MCC in particular, but there are some others that I didn't do here, but there are a whole slew of measures of how a classification, how well it's doing that we just don't ever talk about. And so I think that would sort of be my, again, not that anyone missed it, but that would sort of be the, the driving point is there are other ways to evaluate performance 
And they at least need to be looked at and thought about, if not the ones you decide to go with. I agree. And just to be thoughtful about the analysis you're doing, to really consider it is what we're looking at or what, like you were saying earlier, what your question is, because that's going to inform like what you should be doing a lot of the time. Is there anything that you would change if you could start all over again? And I think maybe the naming of samples might be one of them. Yes, absolutely. This is not my earliest paper by any means, but it is an earlier paper and mistakes were made especially in terminology. Having sat with it and sort of engaged with all sorts of conversations that we're having within the field and just in the world in general, the one that really stands out to me that I would definitely change is I am now in favor of Latinx over Hispanic. I think it is the more appropriate term. Other sort of terminological and slight methodological things. I recently, with some colleagues, had a paper come out in JFS about language use in forensic anthropology, where one of the things that we argued was concepts surrounding ancestry and ancestry estimation or population affinity. They're rarely explicitly defined what you mean, and I'm guilty of that as anybody here as well. And so if I could like go back with who I am today and what I've done now and go back, that would be something I would fix. Methodologically, I think my biggest change would be not lumping my Latinx samples together. I discuss in this paper, I discuss the fact that that probably wasn't the best course of action, but then I sort of justify it to myself as being preliminary. And this is sort of a first step of research and that I want to look at this group to understand what's going on. But Knowing what I know now from the paper that came out of this one that I did with Dr. George, where the groups, at least from Texas and Arizona, are different in some frequencies, I probably wouldn't lump them together again. I would probably treat them separately, even though I don't have any expectations for that group. So those kinds of things. There might be some statistical parameters that I might go back and tweak, but nothing specific there comes to mind. It's mostly data treatment and then presentation changes that I would probably make. What's next? Are you going to continue this research? Are you going to transition to something else? What can we expect? So what's going on is a difficult question to answer, partly because of the state of the world. I Ideally, my next step would be incorporating the metric data, at least with respect to this particular project. And I have a couple of other things that are like half-formed ideas that I want to get to, but right now I can't get anywhere to get any data. So those are on hold. I do want to do the metric inclusion, and depending on how long it takes for me to feel comfortable going anywhere or places to feel comfortable having me, I may give in and see about getting pre-existing metric data. Because at least for some of these people, that must exist. Because I have people from Ham and Todd, I have people from the Terry collection, those data must exist. So that might be one avenue. I mentioned it a couple of times and it's not upcoming, but it is recently published is that language article, um, which I'm really happy with. And then my colleagues, I know we're really happy with. And so that was a project that I think was especially important considering the conversation we're having in forensic anthropology right now about ancestry estimation and sort of the do's and don'ts of that. I I have another project in mind more specifically tied to the specific conversation we've been having about whether or not we should be estimating ancestry, but it is in very early stages. So nothing really to 
to talk about there. But there are, I think, some interesting points that were raised, I think, particularly with the idea that it's possible that providing ancestry estimates that indicate a decedent is a person of color might be affecting the rate at which they get identified. I think that's an interesting idea that is worth investigating in some way whether or not that's happening. And I have some ideas of how to pursue that, but nothing really concrete at this point. Thank you so much to Chris, and thank you for listening. I really enjoyed this chat, and I appreciate the work that Chris is continually putting out. I'll just stick with saying that we will be back soonish. Be good.